Welcome to Explain to Shane. I'm your host, Shane Tews at the American Enterprise Institute. On this podcast, I interview tech industry experts to explain how the apps, services, and structures of today's information technology system work and how they shape our social and economic life. The World Trade Organization, or WTO, met in June to discuss the most pressing topic in the intellectual property space, the proposed waiver of the trade-related aspects of intellectual property rights, or TRIPS waiver, for the COVID vaccines that have been developed by pharmaceutical companies during the pandemic. The Biden administration favored passage of the proposal submitted by South Africa and India to the WTO, calling for this waiver of IP rights on all COVID-related vaccines to enable generic manufacturers to produce quick and cheap vaccines. The vote for the waiver fell short, but it did produce a compromise allowing governments to issue compulsory licenses to domestic manufacturers, but agreeing on the idea that they must compensate patent holders. As my guest today, Michael Rosen pointed out in his recent piece for AEI's Tech Policy Daily, South Africa discarded 100,000 doses of the vaccine in March, and Kenya destroyed more than a million doses this spring due to the vaccine being expired. And there are more than 12 billion doses already in production in 2022. This points towards the challenge being supply chain and distribution problems more than production issues with the pharmaceutical companies. Mike also notes the proposed WTO changes would be a major change in biotech and IP policy that would resonate well beyond the immediate COVID vaccine manufacturing situation as it pertains to IP rights. This is why my guest, Michael Rosen, is on for the second time to explain to Shane. I highly recommend listening to his previous podcast, which is episode 35 on July 6, 2021, for a primer on intellectual property rights and how important IP rights are for shaping the future of innovation and public health. Mike is an AEI fellow who specializes in intellectual property and patent issues. He writes often on IP-related incentives for innovation and on the patent reform in Congress and the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office. Mike is a book review columnist for The Federalist and National Review for those of you looking for a good beach read. And he is based in Israel, where he is a partner of Cobra and Kim LLP and the founder of his own law firm. Mike, welcome back to Explain to Shane. I actually went back and listened to our podcast from last year as a refresher to do this. And I learned so much again. Anybody who's, you know, wants Law 101, definitely listen and learn about IP rights and, and all the fun stuff that go around with that. We're also very lucky to have you here in D.C. Last time you were here, we were talking about the COVID-19 vaccines and the potential of getting a waiver from the WTO. And the WTO just finished meeting. So let's kick off this conversation with that. What was the final outcome from this WTO meeting last week? Sure. And thanks very much for having me back, Shane. Great to be in studio with you. I think it could be last time we even had masks on and now we don't. So that's great. Yeah. Um, What a difference a year makes. (laughs) Exactly. So... Yeah, when we last uh, we last discussed this topic in June of 2021, the Biden administration had just one month earlier issued its opinion, its declaration that the U.S. would now favor the proposal that had been put forward in October of 2020 by India and South Africa. And under that proposal, there would essentially be a waiver of all IP rights, what are called in the WTO context, TRIPS, trade-related aspects of intellectual property. And to waive those rights with respect to everything related to COVID, vaccines, treatments, diagnostics, equipment, and other uh, accoutrements that, that accompanied our very painful two and a half year journey through this pandemic. So that would mean anything that somebody came up with during that time period, like you created it, you produced it, it just came public comments from the get go. 
Correct. If you got a patent on some new clip that would make the mask attach without attaching to your ears and make you a little more comfortable, in theory, South Africa and India wanted that to be included within this waiver. And the Trump administration in October 2020 and then up until the inauguration of, of President Biden resisted that guidance, said that it was it was wrong. Europe followed along with it. But in May 2021, the Biden administration, the U.S. Trade Representative Catherine Tai stepped forward and said, we now favor this proposal by India and South Africa. So where we left off in June, that was relatively fresh and it hadn't progressed very far. It had only been a month or so since the announcement. But even at that point, it seemed dubious that this proposal would actually gain traction and that if it would, it would take a very long time. So that was half right and half wrong in the end. It ended up actually succeeding in some form that we'll talk about in a moment, but it did take a very long time. And it was only last Friday, June 17th, at the ministerial committee meeting of the WTO in Geneva that at long last, the various countries and member nations of the WTO came to a compromise. So what happened? (laughs) So in the end, the member nations agreed to a limited waiver related to COVID. And what that means is it's only related at this point to COVID vaccines, not to treatments, not to therapeutics, and not to diagnostics, and not to all the other different aspects. It's limited only to patents, not to trade secrets, meaning that any of the know-how that goes along with coming up with these vaccines that is not contained in a patent, that will remain the property of the innovative breakthrough companies that pioneered these these vaccines. It's in place only for five years, so it would have to be renewed after five years. And there are other various sort of more ministerial or technical kind of uh, kind of limitations on it. And to some extent, the the pharmaceutical industry nationwide, the countries like the UK, which is not part of the EU, obviously, which has some of its own producers, Switzerland, which is also a, a strong manufacturing pharmaceutical manufacturing and development country. They pushed back. They managed to hold the line somewhat. So the the results were not as bad as they could have been, but they were still they're still plenty bad, unfortunately. So let's just do a quick review, because I remember being fascinated learning about this last year for when this issue first came up. You, you not only have what some I hate the phrase government money, because I don't think the government really has money. They have my money and your money. So we have money being funded by the government, but there was a lot of venture capital money that came into this. And so that seems like the biggest disincentive I could possibly think about of doing anything going forward, because when we understand it's, it's going to be more or less like a flu shot. We're going to get one every year and we're going to have to stay on top of it. And we're going to need a lot of information flow about how this is going globally, because that's how you create a better flu shot every year. So, India and South Africa also ended up with a lot of surplus vaccine. I learned that from reading your piece <laughs> that you did for AEI last week. That seems incongruous to this entire conversation. It's exactly right, Shane. It's incongruous from the get-go, frankly. Now it's even more so. So initially, the objections that we talked about last time and that were made over and over and over again were that don't have a problem with patents. We have a problem reaching remote communities in the global south getting these vaccines to them because of all sorts of issues related to supply chain deep freezing storage cold storage transportation and 
that was what was holding up getting these doses in arms to in the developing world. Now we have almost a different issue. We still continue to have those issues, but we now have more supply than we have demand for these vaccines. And unfortunately, there is something of a a campaign as there was in the United States, but also internationally, even in the developing world, where among some communities, there's resistance to getting vaccinated, just like there was here. And for that reason, I, I think the pharmaceutical industry published their statistics. They've now They've now put out 13 billion doses of the vaccines across all of them. And I think what we mean by that is Moderna, Pfizer, AstraZeneca, maybe some others, and Johnson Johnson, and plan to put out another 20 billion this year. We don't have a supply problem at all. It's not a matter of now we need to allow other countries, developing countries, to manufacture their own generic versions of these drugs. The problem is getting shots in arms overcoming vaccine hesitancy and resistance and transporting these doses to the remote corners of the world that they need to be transported to. And unfortunately, this latest decision by the WTO does none of those things. So tell us, what was the situation with China? So initially, the compromise that had been floating around would have excluded certain countries that already manufactured 10% of more or more of global supply of vaccine doses. And prominently that included China, which does make a tremendous amount of, of this, its Sinovac vaccine and it exports it to other countries in the rest of the world. China's actually been very successful with its vaccine diplomacy, maybe more so than with the actual efficacy of its vaccine, but they have managed to export to a number of of countries as a way of building bridges and making friends. So initially, they were meant to be excluded from, from this agreement, meaning that there was essentially no reason for China to now have access to patents from other companies like, let's say, Moderna and Pfizer to start making generic versions of that medicine, of that vaccine, when they already produce so much of their own vaccine. It does seem that at, in the end, and, and we're still studying this to be sure, but that provision that would have had that exception for China seems to have been stricken from the final agreement. And that means that even China now can make generic versions of community and all the other sort of Western uh, vaccines that are out there. Interesting. All right. Well, thank you for that update. That's very helpful. Let's talk about some other good stuff. What's going on with standard essential patents? We had some changes recently. You know, it's one of those issues that those of us who follow these things, it's an ongoing, it's a gift that keeps on giving. We have indeed. And uh, certainly patent lawyers love to talk about standard essential patents and fair, reasonable and non-discriminatory terms on which they're, they're licensed. But indeed, there has been a recent development here. So, In 2019, the Trump administration issued new guidance that up until that point, and and let me back up for a moment, standard essential patents are what they sound like. They are patents that various companies come up with and develop that become a part, an irreplaceable, an essential part of a certain technical standard. So if you think about the 802.11G Wi-Fi standard, right, that's promulgated by the, the IEEE, There are many of these types of standards that are out there. All Wi-Fi devices sold in the U.S. and and even, I I think, internationally as well, will comply with that standard. Different products will comply with other different types of standards. And when a standard essential patent goes into the standard, it means that 
when you have a product that practices the standard, they are also necessarily practicing that patent. And it can be a very good thing to get included in there because it means your ideas, your innovation is, is actually being used by many, many people all around the world. But part of the issue, an issue arises when there are negotiations over the terms of these patents. So in order to get recognized as a standard essential patent, you need to make available your patent on what are called FRAND terms, fair, reasonable, and non-discriminatory terms. Basically exactly what they sound like. And if a company refuses to accept those terms and uses your patent without your permission, um, then they're infringing. And the question becomes, in that situation, can a standard essential patent owner get an injunction, injunctive relief against an infringer who infringes a standard essential patent? You would normally think, well, of course, why not? What would be the reason that they couldn't? Just like any other patent, if you use my property without my permission, I have the legal right to stop you from doing that. That's what an injunction is. And that indeed is what the Trump administration decided in 2019 when they issued its guidance along with the Patent and Trademark Office and the National Institute of Standards and Technologies. And they said that appropriate remedies for patent infringement, including injunctive relief, should be available to SEP holders. Very simple. So then what happened? In 2021, late last year, the Biden administration put out new guidance. And in that guidance, it withdrew the 2019 Trump statement and instead essentially asserted that generally speaking, when an SEP holder has made a voluntary FRAND commitment, generally the various factors that go into the injunction analysis militate against entering an injunction. This created a whole firestorm among the patent community and patent practitioners. There was a notice and comment period that was open for several months, as it always is. And just last month, um, or earlier this month, even in June of 2022, the Biden administration backed away from its new guidance. So it had still withdrawn the 2019 Trump administration guidelines, but now it's unclear. It's sort of a neutral position on it. And it just sort of, when you couple that with the flip-flop on the waiver, the TRIPS waiver for COVID vaccines, it seems sometimes that the Biden administration's patent policy is just at sea. It's it's just unclear what they're doing. Well, that's got to be tough for anybody who's trying to move forward with anything that's you know physical technology. I know following a lot of what's going on in, in Europe, and they've just a couple of weeks ago came out and said that they want to mandate the USB-C cord. <laughs> they, want, they don't want Apple using the lightning, you know, cord. They went, actually, Apple was trying to go for wireless, you know, when the, this was like a step that direction. And now you've got the government deciding what type of, you know, electrical device you're going to plug into your gizmo. There's so many things that concern me about this, plus the fact that you don't know where you stand on actually if you implement somebody's entity into your device, you know, who you're going to owe money to or where or, or not. It seems like we're getting into a very chaotic environment when it comes to, you know, software is doing a lot of the hard work now, but we're still not settled on how we're managing through the hardware. So am I getting that right? Are we- yeah, no, you're exactly right. And, and here I feel torn on this issue because from a very practical perspective, <laughs> I would love it if Apple so actually cord, complied right? with, yeah. with the rest of the world I'd and the rest of all I'd the other companies. I'd also like to be able to touch my Mac screen and have it react to like the, every other Mac device. But, you know, they all have their reasons. That, would, their- that would be nice. Exactly. I but just don't think the government should mandate it. Though. Correct. Exactly. <laughs> and I agree. That's why if it ended up being finalized in that way such that there would only be USB-C cords and, and charging cables, 
I wouldn't be upset from a practical perspective, but the way that we got there is not right, right? And for whatever reason, Apple has its reasons that it thinks its its uh, lightning technology is better. Maybe it makes more money off of it, but for whatever reason, that's how they do it. And consumers continue to buy Apple products and they should have the right to continue to do that. And Apple should be able to make what it makes. So it, it's unfortunate, at least theoretically, that, that that's what the regulators in Europe are doing. But it's not terribly surprising either. Yes, yes, that's true. So what else should we be thinking about in the IP space for those you who think about this all day long? Sure. So there is one other issue that's starting to come to the front a little bit more. And that involves the International Trade Commission. So the ITC is a quasi-independent unit within Department of Commerce that is designed to prevent the unfair importation of different products into the United States that that harm the United States, harm the public interest of the United States. And one of the main ways that it does that is it prevents infringing products, products that infringe the patents of what are meant to be domestic industries, American companies, or foreign companies that have a substantial presence in the United States. And the ITC has recently come under fire for a practice that that certain entities have undertaken. And that is where you have so-called patent trolls or patent assertion entities that engage in, in various ways of proving that they have this domestic industry that really, unfortunately, are, are, are smoke screens for something else. And Congress has taken up, is reintroduced a bill that was introduced last year as well that would clamp down on this type of abuse, what, what's called domestic industry by subpoena. And the way that it works is essentially when some of these companies that, again, don't make anything, they don't actually manufacture anything, but they do manage to get some ruling or some settlement on patent infringement with someone that actually does make, make an actual product. They then obtain a license to that product and they purport to use that company that actually makes products as their domestic industry, meaning some involuntary licensee because they settled a patent case for, let's say, you know, a couple hundred thousand dollars. They then become the grounds for why this patent assertion entity is able to get relief at the ITC. And that relief, by the way, is extremely powerful. It's what's called an exclusion order. It means that whatever product the infringing company makes may not be imported into the United States. Customs agents appear at the ports and inspect the boats and destroy the infringing items as they come in. So it's an extremely powerful tool for for these companies to wield. So under this new legislation, that bipartisan legislation, by the way, there would be a few things that would be done. Um, most importantly, it would require the party that the the company that supposedly is responsible for this domestic industry to sign on to the complaint and become affirmatively part of that complaint. So So it's not just that they're assuming that they would be, they would have to actually step forward and do this, which they don't want to do, right? They're just dragged into this. They want nothing to do with this dispute. So that would clamp down on that. And it would also affirmatively require the ITC itself to find that excluding these articles, excluding the products that infringe, 
would be in the interest of the public. They would have to make an, an affirmative ruling that that is the case. Whereas now, essentially, it's the opposite. As long as they don't find that an exclusion order would be harmful to the public, they will allow the exclusion order to issue. So there are a few different things, um, also ways of sort of short-circuiting the, the investigation at the beginning that would help make things a lot more efficient, that, that this legislation could be very beneficial. Well, that's, that's hopeful. Like we talked about that again last year, but, you know, last year kind of just started to exist. It was a little weird. So, yeah, patent trolls still seem to be doing their best of, you know, finding ways into this process and getting paid money for nothing. Right. (laughs) It's true. And, you know, different types of abusers have found their way into different ways as well. The flip side of things where what's called the PTAB, the Patent Trial and Appeal Board, where patent office proceedings, trials over the validity of patents are held, you now have essentially what what might be called reverse patent trolls, but it's entities that file a number of these complaints to try or petitions to try to invalidate patents, held legitimate patents, good, strong patents, when they have no interest in the case. They have no standing in any sort of litigation of any sort. They just form and try to attack patents that are in the middle of litigation district court. And it's just a way of forcing essentially a shakedown from the patent owner to settle these cases, make them go away. In some cases to literally pay the money so that their expert doesn't show up at the hearing in front of the, the PTAB. And then the ruling would be, you know, in favor of the patent owner. And unfortunately it's, it's a loophole or it's essentially legal to do. There's nothing legally preventing it from happening, but it's happening anyway. So when we say patent trolls, we often think, well, these are just patent owners, they're IP holders who are out to abuse the system. And that does happen. But there are also trolls who who are anti-patent and who are trying to take down worthy patents or at least shake down the patent owners and make it much more difficult, more expensive for them to enforce their rights. It's like a, a lot of energy there, all by a bunch of lawyers trying to figure stuff out. I was mentioning that I just finished the book, uh, The Founders by Jimmy Sony, and how when PayPal was going into its IPO, just and I didn't know that it makes sense. This is like you get a file and all of a sudden people start knocking on your door and they have these very generic, you know, patents. It's, it's almost like the spoken word. You know? Like we patented that. And so you're going to have to pay us if you want to talk out loud. But, you know, they had three of them that came towards them at, right at the end of where they were going to do an IPO. And, I, and you always hear about these. I hadn't put all the, the puzzle pieces together on that. And it seems like I'm glad to hear that there's legislation moving forward. And But it's tricky. You know, there's a lot of stuff going on in there. It is. And, you know, it's an election year. So it's difficult to imagine that this is going to get very far this year. But hopefully they'll at least they lay the groundwork. That's not a very good point. Well, thank you again for your time. Got to make this an annual thing. Love it. That would be great, Shane. Thank you for having me. I would love to do it again. All right.